This episode of the Brewdeck Podcast is not your typical one guest at a time kind of situation. This episode features three yeast experts from three different companies, Fermentus, Lalamond, and White Labs, together at the same time. Listen through to find out what happens on Yeast Buds, episode nine of the Brewdeck Podcast. Hey everyone, this is uh, Tim Roberts, and I'm with Country Malt Group. I'm the territory manager in Pennsylvania, New Jersey. And in this episode of the Brew Deck, we're super, super happy to have three yeast experts that represent, uh, you know, a huge segment of the business in the U.S. And I think it's best to kind of just let these guys introduce themselves. So take it away. Hi, I will start. My name is Marcelo Sardan. I work for Fermentis since 2007. Uh, I am based in Miami, Florida since uh, 2015. I am a PhD in biology, molecular biology, exactly. During my PhD, I discovered beer and, and industrial fermentations and really became my passion. Beer on the top of the list. And then I was working with Crapperin Industries since 1999 as a consultant, educator, brewer, owner of a brewery and since 2007 with Fermentus. That's a little bit of myself. I'm Pablo Gomez. I'm technical account manager for Ylabs. I'm based in Asheville, North Carolina, where we almost four years ago, we opened a, a lab. And, you know, since I started brewing long, long time ago, I always got connected with fermentation. You know, there was not a lot of information out there. And I kind of like have to figure out myself what, you know, how to make better beer. And when I started, like, I figured out that fermentation was the most important part. Then I got hooked. My little background, I've been working for the Cicerone program, you know, helping develop the Spanish program for Cicerone. I'm currently the Spanish editor for the Symergy magazine, the American Homebrew Association. Yeah, that's kind of like um, a little bit of background for me. My name is Eric Dixon. I'm with uh, Lalamond, based out of Chicago. Uh, I've been with Lalamond for a few years now uh, with my background primarily in brewing. Before that, I was kind of looking to do something different within the industry, and that's when I came across Lalamond. Great. Well, as you said, we uh, have a whole lot of knowledge about yeast and fermentations and everything. So, you know, let's get started with, with sort of me taking a visit back to my early career and talking about dried versus liquid, because I was always taught that when you bought dried yeast, you couldn't repitch it. And so and I, I think that's sort of been something that's either been changed or debunked and, and, and maybe a little entry into talking dried versus liquid. Yeah, it's two versus one here. Let's it's see. two versus one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can start if you want, but I, I remember those days. Uh, this is not about dry yeast technology. It's about the, the know-how of the companies that are drying yeast. And, uh, you know, I think it's a dry yeast technology works. I think the products you have in the market today is really, really good. That was proved before uh, those times. The problem is that when you produce beer yeast or, or you dry yeast for beer, you need to consider a couple of things which are very important. Quality is different. So you cannot put bread yeast to produce beer. You can produce beer, but then the risk is very high because you have some other quality needs for, 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 for beer. So it's completely different. That was taken in consideration. The situation changed a lot, and that happened probably more than 15 years ago. That's uh, basically what, what we can say. But today, for us, from the perspective of fermentis, the quality is very important. It's, 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 it's one of the top priorities. And we are continuously improving quality and working on that. We have R&D programs to improve our quality, the quality of our products. But today, you can rely on, on these products. So today, if you start with liquid yeast, dry yeast, you can 
of course, recycle these, you can uh, harvest these and go to the next fermentation. It's just, uh, you need to obviously to take care as you take care of liquid ease with the, 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 the cleaning process. So you need to clean like you can always your brewery. Today, it's, those are really reliable products. Hey, and Pablo, you'll get your chance, but Eric, maybe you want to <laughs> chime in on, on exactly what changed in terms of the improvement in quality that allows us to repitch dried yeast now. I think, well, certainly what Marcello was saying, I think a lot of the technology has come a long way. I think brewers wanted a better product and that's what was offered to them over time. We're doing, you know, 24 tests on all our batches of yeast to confirm, you know, purity and genetics uh, before they get out the door, which is something, you know, we weren't doing 30 years ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's also, it's my understanding that just the amount of sterols that are, are able to remain in the drying process is also just a huge aid. And so for the you know, point counterpoint, Pablo. What do you what do you have to say about dried versus liquid? <laughs> I totally agree with with both of them. Um, I think that dry yeast dramatically improved in the past five ten years. Yeah, I think it, right now it's it's a great product. It's different than liquid. That's what I would say. You know, there's a difference, and you can see it. You know, right? The price is different. You know, shelf life is different. Every you know, dry and liquid have the pros and the cons. Personally, I think that in the sensory perspective, there is a difference, you know, like while I've done some sensory panels and stuff with dry yeast versus liquid with same word, same everything. And I always personally, I always get the difference and, and it makes sense, right? Like uh, I'm not saying one better than the other one, but I'm saying the both have pros and cons, but Liquid yeast is more expensive. Liquid yeast has a, a shorter shelf life. Uh, it's uh, more difficult to, you know, transport, right? Those are the cons of liquid, but why it's still more expensive? And I think it's it's a little bit for me on the sensory side of things. We produce, you know, yeast basically daily. You know, the freshness of the, of the liquid yeast, uh, I think it, it makes a, a difference in the final product. But I think both products both have pros and cons and you know it's up to the the brewer what it's looking for yeah i mean i i concur there are definitely pros and cons in both but you know we all certainly agree that yeast is just you know profoundly important in the production of of quality beer and in fact i have friends that refer to themselves and i know brewers that refer to themselves as yeast farmers and so the idea of farming of course is growing up stuff and so when we get the the sample or the the dried yeast or the liquid culture into the brewery sometimes we pitch it right away and sometimes we propagate it and and I'm wondering if you guys, especially for some of the newer guys out there, would like to discuss about, you know, the difference between propagation and fermentation and maybe even offer some tips. I think one of the things I see, you know, sometimes in the industry, people tend to think that propagation and growing yeast by fermentation by fermenting yeast is the same and it's not the same. Very few breweries have the right equipment to properly propagate yeast, right? So you can grow yeast by fermenting it, right? But it's not the same as the propagation a lab will do, right? When a lab propagates yeast, it's looking for biomass. It's growing yeast, not going through basically fermentation, very minimal fermentation, depending on how you uh, propagate. Right. I think dry yeast propagates differently than labs than propagate liquid. But besides that, 
I don't know, let me tell you some of the differences. Like a lab will propagate yeast with sterile wort, will use a lot of more nutrients than a brewer will use. You know, it will be constantly aeration, you know, oxygenating the yeast so the yeast can grow, you know, and create more biomass. So there's big differences. And yes, there are ways to grow yeast a little bit in, in the brewery. But, uh, you know, I want to just to make sure uh, the people understand the difference between a, a propagation, you know, per se, and growing more yeast, growing the cell count a little bit by fermenting. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the, I take one word that Pablo said about uh, uh, biomass production. So I understand propagation as uh, the production of biomass. So you have different ways to do that. Okay. In fact, you can do, you can produce biomass fully anaerobic conditions with, with some the fermentation. But this is not good if then you have to go through a brewer fermentation process. There are some issues, okay? Then you have a, you can have an anaerobic batch propagation. Then you can have a fed batch propagation where you add sugar sequentially and you take advantage of the crop tree effect. You know, when we grow yeast in the plants, we add sugars in a way that we keep the concentration of sugars very low. And then when you put oxygen, this does not produce ethanol. This is a very, very good way to produce biomass because you don't produce alcohol. All the sugars are used to produce biomass. However, there are some other things you need to consider. It's uh, contamination, for example. You need to have very strict conditions. I think it's extremely important that propagation is something that the industry is doing. It's something very valid. It's something that breweries can do, but uh, it's very important to do in a proper way. I mean, it's important to have all the equipment to do right propagation, to have quality control, because you can propagate bacteria, for example. If you don't do it properly, you can propagate bacteria as you propagate yeast, and then you will have an issue with the fermentation. That's basically what I can say. So it's propagation could be very risky if you don't have the right elements or quality control process. And that's something complicated for small breweries today. So it's because you need to invest in people, technology, and that's, that's really complicated. That's why you, you also see more propagation in, in bigger plants today. Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's obviously there's a, there's a cost and an investment aspect to it. But uh, Pablo actually said something that I thought was interesting, that there's a difference in how liquid culture and dry yeast are, are propagated. And I'm wondering if you can say a few words on that, Eric. The biggest difference in the propagation of those two is the sugar source. So liquid, of course, being grown with wort and then the dry yeast uh, for us at Lala is done with molasses. That's the real, real difference. Uh, we use fed batch, which I think is what Fermentus uses as well forced air and some nutrient just to get things off the ground. Yeah, and agreed. I mean, I, I think probably the, what people could take away is the fundamental differences are the incremental or periodic addition of both air uh, or oxygen and, and sugar, right? Yeah. And it was interesting, something that, that Pablo brought up a little while ago about the sensory in, in the final beer. And we've talked a little bit about that before, and I guess it comes down to how that yeast is grown. I personally can't tell the difference, but some people can. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big, there's a big debate. <laughs> and yeah. obviously I listen to that very often, but we, we don't see really differences. In, because of course we do our internal research and we really don't see differences when we propagate and we create. Because of course we, we compare with our own strains. So we can propagate and we can compare with dry yeast and we don't see really differences in terms of. But of course, those are, I know there are different opinions and, and there are different perceptions about that. It's strain dependable, right, too? There's some strains that are 
you know, harder to find a difference and then other ones than, you know, they're kind of more obvious. Yeah, something it's important in line to what you're saying, Pablo, is that not all the strains can be dry successfully, okay? That the decision to put one strain in the market that you don't has low viability, that's very important because then you will see differences, okay? So that's part of the quality program of the, of the company you're working for. So uh, I suppose Laliman has the same idea. So we don't put in the market strains that we believe that don't will not perform very well uh, because the, the drying process is not successful. Yeah, we have that same hurdle where we got to beat that trellis and sterile uh, minimum before we can even dry or the cells just fall apart. Well, yeah, for sure. Like you guys alluded to, I mean, I think there's some of these standard strains out there like Chico or Fuller's or, you know, the the common names that you want to call them. And all you guys have versions of them. But I know, you know, from a brewing standpoint, when you start talking about flavors, you know, I I do believe that there are subtle differences from, you know, from one yeast bank or one producer to another. And and I think we're talking about yeasts, of course, and they've been around, you know, absolutely forever. You know, there's some of the, the basics of life. And lately, there's been a real, at least from my way of thinking, or maybe I'm just more aware of it, is that there's been a real proliferation of yeast strains. And I'm wondering if you guys have thoughts on, you know, the idea that you're trying to give, you know, maybe brewers another arrow in their quiver by by propagating a new yeast or supporting a new yeast and or isolating a new yeast. And I, I think that's kind of something that's been interesting, but that's also happened, you know, I think probably most notably in, in the hop producer segment. Brewers are, are crazy. Sorry about that. <laughs> I, I love brewers because... Uh, you know, they, they are so innovative and they push us to, to look for new things in the market. But also, if you look since 2012 or maybe before, there are so many works about taxonomy. In fact, I think Y Labs participated in some of them uh, just to understand the biodiversity. It's, it's amazing what we have there. Okay. Of course, point of view of a dry yeast producer, we cannot produce all strains in dry, but we try to, to, to look for very for strains that are really representative of the different groups. That's how, and then, and then of course, there are, we have new challenges every day. We have a huge R&D program trying to understand different easy strains and trying to, to identify different easy strains and then try to look for the best representative of these groups. That's our approach. Of course, uh, one of the, I have to say, I have to recognize that one of the big advantages of the liquid yeast is that you can put in the market a lot of diversity, okay? That's, uh, we are living in the middle, but, but, but I think we have a quite good uh, representation of, of the different groups of, of beer yeasts. In the- it's an interesting topic because I guess it depends how adventurous you are. Some labs in some parts of the world, and they're already playing with modifying the, you know, genetic modified yeast. There's some labs that are playing with hybrids. You know, it's all respectable. You know, everybody has their own opinions. I love science, you know, uh, so it kind of excites me all that. But at the same time, one of the things that I like the most about brewing, I like the science, of course, but I like the art side of brewing. So I think if we, if suddenly everything gets, starts like being genetically modified and I create this amazing yeast and can, I don't know, do whatever, interact perfectly with mosaic hops and sour at the same time and whatever you want to call it. It sounds exciting, but I think it will lose some of this art, right? 
So in my opinion, I think that blends are a good answer right now. Like, uh, you know, like I don't think like brewers have been explored for a while. I've been doing some recently work on blending different organisms, microorganisms to create something cool. And, you know, not modifying anything, you know, you know, doing a hybrid and something crazy in a, in a lab, you just blend in, you know, different strains or different microorganisms and you get a different type of beer. So I think that there's a lot of things then, you know, if you want to get something a little different, I would encourage brewers to start like blending, you know, not just like 50 and 50% of this and this, use three different you know, strains or, or use different amounts of yeast or mix it with another microorganism, mix it with bread or like, a, you know, with a wild yeast or bread or mix it with a bacteria, you know, whatever it is. And I think there's a lot of room there for kind of creating different new flavors or, you know, things. Yeah, I think there is a lot of diversity out there still. <laughs> we need to to learn a lot about of course in fact bike is one, one case nobody was talking about this group of strains and cultures in, in the past now it's something new it's coming yeah, i agree so uh, you have hybrids hybrids you we are discovering new hybrids very often right now so the first the most famous case is the case of uh, lager strains second is pastorianus but now we know there are some other hybrids that are frequent in the beer industry. Biker are also hybrids, and that generates a lot of diversity. Also, blends, as Pablo is saying, it's a really wonderful tool as well. It's more difficult, obviously, to know the behavior of these cultures when you mix them. But, of course, I think brewers have a lot to play, a lot of uh, beautiful things to play. Yeah. I love the idea of co-fermentation. And, and blending strains. I think it's a great way to add complexity and new flavors and, and things in a really quick, easy way. As for innovation, we love innovation at Lama. It's, it's core to who we are. And I think we're really just starting to hit a stride where we're really starting to, we had four strains, new strains this year. And I think we're really happy with where things are going. Well, yeah. And I think as, as Pablo alluded to, the clike yeast, which was isolated in, in rural Scandinavia, and I'd say in, in my travels around visiting brewers and stuff, I, I, I'd say that's probably the most talked about strain recently with the idea, you know, people talk about the flavor for sure, but I, I think sort of the main attributes of it are that the, the really hot fermentations, which of course really speed things up. And I'm wondering if you guys, you know, do you guys all carry a clike? We have uh, our boss, and we also have a few others that we'll be coming out with over the next coming years. How about, how about you guys, Pablo and Marcello? No, we don't. We currently don't have in our portfolio. Of course, this is an important topic for us. We, we have an R&D program, as I said before, and we are working to select new strains and, of course, bike are part of that. One of yeah. the most difficult things with bike strains is that most of them are blends. And we still need to learn a lot, a lot. That, that's one of the most difficult things we, you can see today. So it's well documented. So most of the cultures are blends today. And uh, of course, you, you have some of them that are not, but uh, uh, but it requires a lot of research yet. Sure. And I'm sitting here listening to you guys. Obviously, you guys know a lot more about yeast than I do. But, you know, as, as a brewer, to me, using blends was always potentially problematic because, you know, they don't drop at the same rate. And so when you would harvest them, you'd get a different percentage. And, you know, if you guys are sort of packaging blends, is, is there a way you kind of overcome that issue? 
I would say that that's the only con maybe you can have from blends. Like, uh, it depends on the strength. A blend, you know, if you re- you're going to be reusing yeast, if you're going to be harvesting that yeast, it will eventually change, right? One strain, you know, stronger, right? Always going to take over. Forget about if you in the blend you have any Belgian strain, that will take over pretty fast. I guess that's the thing. If you want consistency, you know, maybe reusing a blend is not the best idea. But uh, I've seen cases of brewers reusing blends and suddenly on generation three or four, the blend became even better than what it was at the beginning. So, you know, I guess, like I said, it, it depends on what type of brewery you have. What are you looking for? You know, I'll see, I see blends and stuff as a more adventurous type of brewers. Maybe if you have more like classic and you, you know, you're probably not even interested on a blend or something or anything new. You want to do classic things and uh, beers or using yeast, then you kind of like know what's what they're going to do, right? On blends, it could be a little bit, you know, of course, coming from the lab, it will act the way it should or the, the what the, the lab intended. But then once you start harvesting and reusing it, it might change for good or for bad. You know, in, in the past, uh, many breweries were using blends and yep. they probably didn't know about that. So, but those <laughs> were cultures that were well established. Okay. So stabilize it, we can say. What Pablo say is true. So when you have the first generation with a blend, so there are interaction between the strains, different kinetics. So one, one is a strain taking over the other one. One of the things we recommend when brewers do some blends is to take a look at the kinetics and see if you have a very aggressive yeast or another one with, if you put together with another one which a long lag phase, that aggressive strain may take over the, the fermentation. So you will probably not see any effect of the other one. So, and then you have to play with the, the rate, so the ratio. So th- there are some things, some tools you, you may have, uh, you, you can use before the, uh, defining the blend. But then when you finish the first generation, that could be completely different. Uh, so the ratio could be completely different. Then the flocculation sedimentation is different. So you may have one strain more prevailing uh, th- than the other and in a different ratio. And then at some point, those cultures may, may be stabilized and you don't know when you reach there. That's, a, as Pablo said, I think it's not very easy to keep that culture going if you want to have consistency. When we first started looking at Kvike, all the samples that we got were, were blends. And they were pretty big blends. I think they were like like nine to ten different strains. And going through those, we just sequenced them out and, and found the dominant strain in that blend and, and just did some more tests on that strain. That's how we came up with the, the products we're making now. Yeah, that's interesting. I was actually I was lucky yeah. enough to be visiting a brewery in England and was and talking to the brewmaster, and it was a fairly sizable one who had who had run into a yeast problem in the fifties, and they borrowed some yeast from the uh, the brewery down the road, and then just kind of forgot about it, got more of their yeast. And, but what had happened is they had both taken hold in the brewery, and like you know, seventy years later, they existed after they took it to the lab and in the brewery samples at almost an exactly fifty. 50-50 blend with, you know, after 70 years. So, you know, obviously an example yeah. of two evenly matched yeah. strains. But I just thought it was a pretty phenomenal story. We're talking a lot about innovation in terms of flavor. And I think for the brewer, that's probably ultimately, you know, for most of us, you know, it's, it's what drives us to, for the, you know, gives us the passion for brewing great beers, of course, the flavor. But, you know, there are serious processing 
questions for yeast that, you know, for example, the kvik or bike rather ferments so quickly. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what role in innovation does sort of processing advantages uh, play for you guys? During the pandemic, <laughs> one of the things, you know, I needed to get myself busy. So I went to our bank and I identified all the different bike strains we had in there. And I started doing trials with six different bike strains. Right now we have four available. Opshug, Sigmund, which is the Voss, known as Voss 2. We have Stranda and then we have Hornendal. It's interesting. What I found is it's basically what is interesting about Kvike. It's not that it can ferment at those hotter temperatures. Any strain can ferment at 90 degrees. Now, is any strain going to make good beer? No, right? It's going to be full of fusel alcohol, esters and name it, right? But this Kvikes were able to ferment at those temperatures, which, you know, the hotter the temperature, the faster. That's that's the whole secret, right? It's not under any special that they ferment fast because they have some specific gene. No, they ferment fast because you fermented it at 90 degrees, 90, 90, 95, right? That's why they ferment so fast. The secret I think they have, and it's not really a secret, I got a theory. Well, it's not that I created, but by talking to people, talking with Lars Garshaw, which is kind of like the guy behind all this. The, the point is like this, this uh, Kvike strains can keep it cool at those hotter temperatures. <laughs> if, you know, like they, they don't produce a lot of this crazy amount of esters and any other strain can produce at that temperature. And But they're all different, right? That's why we decided last year we have only one strain out and this year we released three more after this research of, after these trials because we've seen different characteristics and these uh, strains. It's it's very interesting, you know, what's going on with the Kvikes and why they can ferment that clean, let's say, at those hot hot temperatures. I agree. It's, it's really interesting, but sometimes uh, you know, it's <laughs> the other day it was just one story. I was. Talking about salsas, we were presenting about a couple of strains that we recommend. Uh, that was a conclusion in a really important R&D program. There's a question that is coming very often. Can we do it with bike? I don't know. Uh, people is really, they put a lot of expectations in these new uh, strains. But uh, I believe that today we still have a lot of diversity out, out there. And vehicle will, uh, bike will be incorporated in the brewing process more often. But at the end of the day, it will be a new tool. Uh, it's something new for the brewers. But uh, I don't think it will essentially change the process for, for, for the breweries. I, I don't, uh, that's my personal opinion. I think it's something more, something else, really nice, but uh, I don't think it will change uh, the things too much. Another thing, for, for example, talking about temperature, we have a lager strain that normally, of course, you know, we, we recommend to ferment between at very low temperatures, but we, we know after some work, some application tests, that that strain performs very well at high temperatures, and you can have a very nice lager fermentation at 68 degrees Fahrenheit, for example. Those are things we are discovering every day when we do more and more research. Okay, and that's uh, we are telling people you can produce a lager at 68 Fahrenheit. People they look at us and say, okay, that's not possible. Yes, it's possible. So 
do and we, we show data about that so we are discovering new things every 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 single day it's uh, everybody not for men because of course there, are, there is a lot of research going on there and Vika I think is part of the innovation it's but not the solution uh, I think it's something else that will do the beers uh, something more rich you will have one more option that's uh, that's my perception I think that versatility is is tremendous you know especially in brewing you know, like to sit down and see people make stouts with like and IPAs and sours and all from the same kind of yeast is, is really incredible. And they're all kind of flavorful and good. So I think that's that's huge. Yeah. One thing I found uh, at least on one strain of the Hornindal, uh, it's our WLP 521. Five, it's that it's high in, in producing glycerol. And, you know, glycerol can give you a, a contribute, you know, to a body perception or kind of like more a sweetness type of thing. So I found that when brewing, like say a New England IPA, that was kind of one of my favorite. And I was wondering why. And then by doing research, we found that. And uh, I think that's a good tool to use. You know, that's kind of what you're looking, you know, in a, in a New England IPA. But um, yeah, there's a lot of more research to be done. These strains were uh, used to ferment totally different beers in, 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 in Norway than what, you know, brewers are using it for uh, here. I heard people brewing uh, lagers with Kvaik, right? By starting the fermentation at lower temperatures and then after when reaching 50% attenuation or so, then raising the temp to the 30 Celsius, 90 something, you know, Fahrenheit. Uh-huh. And, you know, having good results, I don't know, I haven't tasted it. <laughs> what I like about it is like, there's more to do about it. And, you know, it's a kind of exciting. Norwegian hard seltzer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, and like you guys are talking about, I mean, there's sort of, you know, there, there's a couple tandem questions there. There's a flavor of yeast, obviously, but then there's also performance. And, you know, I, like you guys have alluded to also is that there's been an explosion of breweries in this country, obviously, in the past decade or so. And I'm wondering if you guys have any, you know, tips for either the more experienced brewers that have access to nice propagation equipment and yeast storage and harvesting and or the new guys that, you know, are, are really sort of first trying to approach the problem of getting the right number of cells and the right amount of work that has the right strength and the right aeration, you know? So I, I guess my question sort of hinges around propagation and storage for the bigger guys or the guys with a little more resources and sort of first steps on making consistent beer for the new guys. When you talk about small breweries, you can see that all all the taproms you have in the U.S. today, it's really amazing. So the diversity of beer is amazing. And and I think also the, the, the yeast, probably in the past was breweries were trying to work with one single culture and try to produce as much of beer as they can with that culture. But now they are, most of these breweries are looking for more diversity coming from, from yeasts. Like you select hops and malts, brewers are starting, or they already started to select easy strains to produce specific styles, okay? And then you can, you can imagine today that you have in one single brewery, maybe one brewer using 10 different kinds of yeasts, okay? How you manage propagation? How you manage the, the cultures in this case? Okay, I think it's at some point you need to decide. Okay, you want to have diversity from coming from yeast, or you want to have your own culture and then propagate and then recycle and then keep that culture in very good shape. And that's where probably dry yeast could be a solution also because you you, you avoid propagation. You can go directly into fermentation. 
or those small breweries a real solution. At some point, what brewers cannot do is, is to play in probably in all the spaces. You cannot propagate, recycle, and then use 10 strains in the same brewery when you have a very, very small brewery. That's something very difficult, and that's creating a lot of problems. And then you have diastatic of yeast, a lot of things that you need to manage, and you increase the complexity when you use a lot of strains. So when you have the possibility to simplify your life, just pitch, you use hops, like you use yeast and malt, it's really very easy, okay? So sometimes you cannot do everything. So then brewers need to, to, to make a decision at some point where they want to go. Buy a good microscope. <laughs> <laughs> a real good well, microscope. I mean, like, like Marcelo, you were saying, it, it, to me, it, it is always a question of, of you know, investment and equipment and what you're able to do. But I, I do agree that you know, the dry yeasts, that kind of gives you a little bit of flexibility and at least for the first generation, a little bit of like, you know, you know what you're pitching for sure. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts on that are, Eric. Uh, I agree with that. I think when you want to get into repitching, I think learning about yeast nutrition is important. You know, making sure you have enough oxygen, dissolved oxygen, wort, making sure you have enough nitrogen, things like that really help when you get on the generation four or five, six. You know, when you keep going down the line, you want to make sure that your yeast is able to perform. Having that microscope, you know, gives you a better way to get some cell counts, you know, staining. Those are all important things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and not not much of a, an investment. And yeah. Martella, you, you mentioned diastaticus, which is, of course, like bike, you know, it, it's in the news a lot. And there are devices that, you know, you can buy in your brewery, like the Paul Jean disc and the BrewPal. And then there's services like in, Invisible Sentinel. And then, of course, there are strains that are diastaticus strains, even though, you know, it, it strains the peace of mind of the brewer to brew that into, in, uh, to bring that into the brewery. But I'm wondering if you guys think, what, what are your thoughts on the topic, I guess? Yeah. I guess, Pablo, I'd throw that to you to start. Yeah, well, the static has been in the industry forever, right? Like uh, any saison strain, any Belgian strain will be SDA1 positive. You know, the thing is, like uh, Marcelo said earlier, you know, long time ago, brewers were using only one strain at the breweries, right? So, you know, an English brewery will never have a saison strain you know, in, in the brewery or, uh, you know. So, you know, I guess that's that's what it, before, you know, people will drink fresher beer, right? They will just make it beer for their tap room and drink it. Now, you know, there's distribution. Now you you, you send them beer across the country. You send beer, uh, you know, to a different country. So the diastatic is, you know, thing became a little more relevant, you know, with the modern type of brewing industry. You know, you find diastaticas in, in grain, right? So cleaning is another big thing. Diastaticas was always around us, but now it became a more important topic. Well, I think, you know, coupled with the PCR detection, you know. I have experience with PCR because I, that was uh, something that I was using during my PhD. But I can, can give you an opinion about the, the tools you have today in the market because, to be honest, I don't have experience on these kind of tools. But uh, PCR, obviously, it's a, it's a tool the brewers have today to detect the presence of the STA gene. Okay? That's a which determines a potential for over attenuation okay but also it's just a potential because you don't know how if you detect the sta gene it doesn't mean it will uh, you will get over attenuation mm -hmm. today one of, one of the things that uh, it's important to talk about is about the accessibility of these tests okay and, and that's something that uh, we have to put focus uh, a lot in our plants so we have developed uh, 
specific tools, those are proprietary tools to, to, to detect the presence of dye statics uh, strains. And in fact, we have involved uh, external labs for that. But today, it's, uh, we are not using the, the tools that the industry is using. So we have our own uh, development and we, we had to look for a better sensitivity of these techniques. So we need to provide to the market a very product that it's safe. So uh, and that, that's the reason we had to look for that. And But it's something that uh, from the producer perspective we are really taking care it is very important for us yeah well man we're just, these days we're sure talking a lot about sensitivity of testing huh eric I, I you know i think you were the one that said the word that that indicated the elephant in the room here and and i think uh, you all know where i'm going with this is seltzers you know i'm asked questions about seltzer fermentation and yeast nutrients all the time and you know i'm sure we could talk all day about it but I don't know, do you have any advice for brewers that are, are starting to dip their toes in that water? Strain selection is important. Make sure you have a strain that can handle that kind of stressful fermentation. Nutrient is a real big, important thing to monitor. I mean, uh, you're, you're basically trying to ferment something that has no nutrient. It's important to buffer the pH of the solution because as that ferment, fermentation goes, you know, you end up dropping the pH and then your, your fermentation stalls out. But that, that's my big, two big pieces of advice. Get a good nutrient. I don't like really the nutrient blends. They sometimes can have a lot of zinc. And then once you get to the level of nitrogen you need, the zinc is poisonous. So you can really get all those products on your own and, and formulate your own blend that really works. I, I also think optimizing that process is, is a smart thing too. You know, do it a few times and, and measure some of those results and really start to look at what's really happening. Yeah, I agree. Seltzers, they seem like something really easy. And then, uh, you yeah. know, people are calling having a lot of issues. Like brewers were like, yeah, I can brew beer. I can easily brew a seltzer. And they were having a lot of trouble. And it's basically because, like Eric said, like it's just pure sugar. It's just glucose. It has no nutrients, no anything, you know, so yeast will struggle, you know. So uh, we, we developed a, a new a nutrient called Seltzer Max that, uh, you know, we kind of like look into what what it was needed, right, to have a good fermentation, like, uh, you know, of, of course, like nitrogen, vitamins, right, uh, minerals. So when this started, right, everybody was kind of like not knowing what's what was going on, right. And another thing, that I, I believe is important is like the right, you know, healthy yeast, the right uh, pitch rate, right? Since, you know, it's going to be hard for yeast, good, yeah. pitch a good amount of yeast. And the other thing is uh, a little bit outside fermentation is the expectations of the uh, brewer, right? Because they all used to drink this, uh, I don't know if I can say the name of the brand, but let's say the most famous one, right? And they all look like crystal clear, right? Perfect. And well, for a craft brewer, that's very difficult to do. These companies who make this most famous hard seltzer waters, they probably have filtration system the size of the, the craft brewery. When you're a craft brewer and you don't have filtration, you know, system, you know, it's difficult to make this crystal clear. It, it will look pretty good, but it's very difficult to get to that point. And I want to mention that because if you as a brewer, craft brewer trying to make a seltzer, you should know about that and then do the best you can to make it look the best way possible. Because that's another thing, you know, people, some people were calling, oh, it kind of look a little hazy or it kind of look this and that. That hard seltzer water was introduced and produced by a massive, you know, company with a lot of uh, equipment, 
you know, than the craft brewers mostly don't have. Yeah, I think it's if I can add something, uh, as they say, it's very easy to, to mix water and sugar. Uh, the problem is then to ferment. But I think the, the fermentation step is, is essential here because if you have a healthy fermentation, then your product will be clean. And maybe you don't have to work a lot downstream, okay? Um, basically, you need to provide nutrition. That means vitamins, minerals, nitrogen. Then you have also to, uh, to work on the buffer capacity. That's very important. And then also, if you produce high gravity, you have the possibility to dilute also and to dilute a lot of volatiles. Okay. So today, I think we have also recently launched this year, it was product, the name is Spring Farm and AB, NAB2. It's a quite complex mix of uh, nutrients and we provide everything they need to, to ferment. Also, there are different fermentation strategies you can follow. You can, for example, add the sugars sequentially to decrease the osmotic pressure. We, we can add some oxygen at specific times of the fermentation. So there are different fermentation strategies you can follow to achieve a healthy fermentation. And then that means that you will get a product which is more clean and less downstream processing. That's, that's very important. Of course, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for us. We are all understanding how to be more efficient to, to, to ferment this kind of substrates. Well, yeah, and kind of like you were saying, I mean, what, what, I, what I talk about is that it, it probably has more in common with brewing than you think. You've eliminated work, which is obviously one of the big building blocks. And so, you know, and for you guys, you know, I think the brewer necessarily has to put a lot of faith in, in, in your companies. And I'm just wondering if you could all talk about sort of, you know, best practices in your lab or, you know, maybe just reassure us all that you guys are sending us a microbiologically pure and viable product. We have specific specifications, okay? Those are very strict and we are improving. I think today the specifications of the dryers you have in the market are exceptional for the beer process. Of course, we have some partnerships with external labs for specific things. But especially quality for us is the most important, probably the most important point. We want to bring the best quality to the brewers, the best quality we can. And today we are really happy about what we are supplying to the market. Concerning to practices, I think it's uh, in the brewery, I think it's quality could be good, bad, whatever, but uh, oh, you can't have the best quality. But if you don't have the best clean process, you will have issues, okay, with liquid yeast, with dry yeast, with everything. So that's, and I think that's very clear for the brewers, but sometimes it's good to say that. So we also, something uh, which is important, uh, we were talking about diversity and all the, all these kind of new beers where you put a lot of hops, chocolate, you put a lot of ingredients. You can imagine that everything is bringing different stuff to the fermentation, okay? So when you do these kind of things, you have to assume as a brewer, you have to assume some risks, okay? And it means that at some point you need to sit down think what you're doing and to implement very good quality procedures, identify the risks. That Those are basically the things we can tell brewers. Well, the other message is we are doing the best in terms of quality to ensure that you have a reliable product. That, that's the message I can, I can bring to them. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that's super important. We have a process of 17 to 21 days that it takes for us to, you know, to propagate yeast. Our system consists on like, you know, once we start growing always every lot, 
Every batch starts from an initial culture, meaning coming from this uh, cryogenic freezer. And then we assign a lot number from the beginning. And every step of the way on those 17 to 21 days, we scan every, every, every checkpoint, every QA, QC point, we scan it. And uh, some of that information for brewers, they can see it by going uh, online on uh, yeastman.com, the, the QC report of every single uh, lot is there and we kind of created like a you know some sort of like traceability type of a system where we can go back or forward back and forth like and see whatever we need to check you know in the past or you know moving forward so it's a key point for labs and then yeah like marcelo said it's it's a matter of a keep improving and keep getting better currently we are um, working developing a kit for uh, targeted to use propagation with uh, invisible sentinel, you know? So I think once done, it's going to be really interesting too. We have a 24 tests that we do on our yeast, and that includes a, a two-week uh, QAQC after the yeast is packaged. You know, we test for stability, for genetics. We run mock fermentations, and, you know, we're, we're really proud that when you pick up a, a brick of wild yeast that it's 100% pure and stable. And you know, we really stand behind that. Excellent. And, you know, I, I certainly didn't mean that as a gotcha question. And you certainly all work for really well-established and, and respected yeast banks and suppliers. And unfortunately, our time here is, is pretty much up. I, I, I had a lot more to ask and who knows, maybe we'll, uh, you'll be the first second episode of the brew deck. And I, I know on the brew deck, we'll probably have you guys as, um, contact information, certainly representatives of your company, if anyone has questions or is interested in, in more follow-up. But, you know, at the end of the day, thank you guys, all of you, so much for taking time out of your day and, and helping to uh, to make this a fun and really interesting and uh, educational um, podcast. Thanks a lot, guys. And uh, we'll talk soon. <laughs>